GCC, Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. Because every time we went out to fundraise, we could pinpoint essentially both how the company was de-risked, but also why the company will be much more de-risked in the next 18 months, right? That is one of the things that, of course, investors are looking at, like, because if you can tell them, look, if you invest in me now, 18 months from now, we are going to de-risk all these other aspects and the company is going to be worth like five times more, they will want to invest in you now rather than later. In this episode, I'm hosting Osan Atai, the co-founder and CEO of Billion to One, a precision diagnostics company that makes molecular diagnostics accurate, efficient, and accessible for all. Their first product to market is Unity, a non-invasive prenatal testing, a leading blood test that shows a baby's risk for common and severe genetic diseases. Don't be alarmed, we won't be talking only science, as it's above my head personally as well. I've known Oasan for a few years now, because we invested in Billion to One at the seed stage. Born and raised in Turkey, Oasan graduated from Princeton for undergrad and then Stanford for his PhD. Billion to One is working in one of these markets that's incredibly large and their solutions potentially incredibly impactful. Companies' products and services have the potential of making hundreds of thousands of lives better, not only now, but also in the future. In this episode, we talked about getting started with a cutting-edge biotech idea in the Bay Area, increasing speed of go-to-market to build momentum, the difficulties in fundraising for an early-stage deep tech business, and the possible tactics to use in getting the resources needed. Hello, Osan. I'm excited to have you on today's episode. I'm a big fan of what you're working on, and we obviously invested in your company. So let's start off with the question of how you came to be the co-founder and CEO of Billing to One. Thanks, Rina, for giving me the opportunity to talk here and inviting me here. Yeah, so my background is academic and uh, scientific mostly. So I've completed my undergrad at Princeton in molecular biology. I'm minoring in some of the interdisciplinary areas like computer science and applied mathematics and physics. And then I've done my PhD at Stanford where I worked, again, in an interdisciplinary area of uh, using essentially quantitative techniques to understand biology at a more fundamental physical level. And after that, we decided that a lot of these uh, principles that we are using, this interdisciplinary approach to biology, can really improve diagnostics, and we started billion to one. Mm-hmm. That's that's very interesting. I mean, as a disclaimer, obviously, uh, we've invested in you, so I know about your history and about billion to one's history a lot up to this day. Uh, so a lot of these questions feel redundant to me, but I think they're going to be interesting to the audience. So thinking about that, a lot of the time, a common struggle around entrepreneurs, first-time entrepreneurs especially, the struggle around fundraising. And essentially, you're an immigrant, or we can call you a foreigner in the US without deep roots or ties in the ecosystem that you're in currently. You're a first-time entrepreneur. So it would be really natural to assume that you've had a lot of struggles in fundraising. But I know from firsthand that it wasn't the case for you. So looking back, could you pinpoint why it was easier for you guys to probably fundraise than compared to some of the other startups uh, that you see in the Valley? I think if I were to be able to point out maybe one or two things that really helped us was having the pedigree definitely helps in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. especially if you are doing something in deep tech and where you are working on something that is 
somewhat related to your area of expertise, right? You are a domain expert. So that has been a significant help in fundraising, uh, especially at the very beginning where when you don't have that much that you can show to investors. But as a clarification, the first time I went out to fundraise, actually it was really, really difficult. <laughs> um, so the first time, the first like 100000 or $200,000 uh, was probably more difficult than the tens of millions of dollars that like yeah. we raised in the last year and a half. So it's, it's really different because at the beginning, you don't have much and you really need people to believe in you and in the team uh, without really understanding even kind of the technology or what you are trying to do. And that is really quite difficult. And of course, the way that you can do that is having a clarity of vision, making sure that your story is really airtight. You really know what you are talking about. And not only from a scientific perspective, but really from all these other aspects of having a business I mean, as an example, like Gates Foundation sponsored a study that looked at why diagnostic companies fail. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the time, it's not because they have a poor product or poor sensitivity or poor accuracy. It is because it can take years before the insurance system in the U.S. catches up and starts uh, reimbursing for your test. So you really need to be able to think about, okay, how am I going to navigate all of these business considerations as well? And we were lucky in that we very early on, we had the backing of Y Combinator. And during that time, I was able to take a lot of, I think, workshops and classes and things like that, where we were exposed to some of the top Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. And that changed how we were thinking about the problems and uh, made us a little bit more businessmen than we would otherwise be. That's something you just like mentioned, something that spoke highly to me, especially when I was thinking about what we would talk about today. Um, in our experience, when we see, when we look at the market, especially in biotech or health tech even, it takes years for companies to build an MVP that's ready to go out to market. It's like there's this long valley mm -hmm. and, and a lot of companies just end up dying there where they you know, are working on this product, working on this technology, but they never see the light of day in terms of meeting with the customers. Mm -hmm. That wasn't necessarily the case with you. I'm sure it was longer than, let's say, a SaaS company um, that's going out to market and building and booking their first revenue, but it was much faster compared to the rest of your segment where you actually went out to market, started building business. What was the main strategy that allowed you to go to market so fast? I think the main strategy that allowed us to go to market kind of much more quickly than I think it would be expected from a healthcare company was that we decided to solve a problem that was quite tractable, but also was an important unmet medical need. And that intersection tends to be rare. Right? You need to solve something that is actually a very important unmet medical need where you know actually people will pay for the solution or the insurance system will pay for the solution. Mm -hmm. But it also needs to be something that can be developed within the timelines of that would be expected from a venture capital-backed company. And in the particular case that we were in, we chose something that would have an, a laboratory-developed test under CLIA framework, and it would be something that is already established in the medical system. And we were bringing a solution that would be much better than what exists 
but it wouldn't be something that is completely novel in the sense that we wouldn't be asking doctors to perform or do a blood draw for something they are used to doing that already, right? That helps tremendously. And in terms of the development pathway, what we did was we were able to, I think, a little bit out of box and create these timelines where at every point in our maybe 18-month cycles, a large section of, large part of the risk was gone. And that was really important for us to be able to, I think, easily fundraise as well. Because every time we went out to fundraise, we could pinpoint essentially both how the company was de-risked, but also why the company will be much more de-risked in the next 18 months, right? Mm -hmm. That is one of the things that, of course, the investors are looking at, like, because if you can tell them, look, if you invest in me now, 18 months from now, we are going to de-risk all these other aspects and the company is going to be worth like five times more. They will want to invest in you now rather than later. You need to incentivize (laughs) the investors to invest in you at every point in that kind of every 18 or 24 month cycle that you have. True, true, true. Uh, But I think it's now a good time to talk about specifically what it is that Billion to One does and how it is better than you know, the incumbents in the market. And then we can talk more about the incumbents right after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So kind of going back to the very beginning, all of our bodies are made up of these trillions of cells. These tissues are made up of cells. And as these cells grow and divide, their genetic material goes into the bloodstream. So there are all these DNA molecules that are floating in our bloodstream. And the companies and scientists have realized in the last 10 years or so that Uh, with the exponential improvements in the sequencing technology, they can find these ATGCs in the blood to be able to do non-invasive tests that previously required invasive methods. Mm -hmm. And in particular, this has uh, really transformed two particular fields, one in prenatal and one in oncology. So in prenatal, this allowed us to look at from a blood test whether a developing fetus has a severe genetic disorder or not. And in the case of oncology, this allowed us to do blood-based biopsies, Mm -hmm. right? Normally, you have to cut a piece of the tumor, and that tumor can be very inaccessible. It can be in part of your brain, in pancreas, in a place that is very difficult to access or impossible to access. And almost all the drugs that have come out in the last 10 years require you to know what mutation your tumor has, right? Mm -hmm. So now by being able to do it via a blood test, because again, tumor is shedding some of the genetic material, some of the DNA into the bloodstream as well, it has really transformed both of these fields. But what we have realized is that a lot of the approaches that are being used are very brute force in the sense that they can only look at very large changes. So what it meant for prenatal was that they could only look at really large chromosomal level changes, and the most important of which is Down syndrome. And again, this has been a transformative field. Millions of tests have been done globally, fastest growing diagnostic sector in the history, actually. It has been really amazing, but it has also been very limited as well, right? Because most disorders, even most severe disorders, are not caused by large chromosomal changes. I mean, really, the main one is Down syndrome. And there are so many more that are caused by one letter change in your genetic material, in your, essentially, if you think of your genome as a huge library, one letter change in one of the books. And that requires a much more precise 
way to look at this cell-free DNA that is floating in the bloodstream. So what we have done is to develop a method that improves the resolution of looking at this cell-free DNA by more than a thousandfold. So now we can look at disorders like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, like spinal muscular atrophy, which are the most common genetic disorders in the world, but until now, they required invasive methods like amniocentesis or CVS. Doctor needs to go in directly to the fetus, like with almost a half a meter long needle. And it's incredibly invasive. Yeah, it's incredibly invasive, right? And until now, that was the method to find these disorders. So that was our first product. That is the one that went through clinical trials where we established the accuracy as more than 99%, and we were able to get our regulatory clearance, Mm -hmm. our CLIA license, and we launched it. And now that business is growing really incredibly well because it is solving a very important unmet medical need in a way that we get reimbursed from the insurance companies, the way that we launched it really fit into that niche Uh, that was missing. And of course, we also have a pipeline of products on the oncology because in the case of oncology, again, as impressive as all of these competitive technologies are, currently all the approved products are limited to stage three or four cancers, Mm -hmm. right? So really late stage cancers where the tumor is so big that it is shedding so much DNA and only then they can detect these mutations in blood. And there are so many things, so many more applications that you can do from early detection to recurrence monitoring to figuring out essentially whether the treatment that you're undergoing is working or not. So you can do so many more applications if your precision, if your resolution was better. Mm -hmm. That is the kind of uh, line of products that we are working on in the next few years as well. Yeah, that's very interesting. Like starting from prenatal and going to market with it and also having a technology that applies to oncology and having various different applications of that. Obviously, both of these problems are incredibly global. They're not only U.S. bound. You know, you see similar problems and need for the solution of those problems all over the world. Uh, And I know you think constantly about geographic coverage and where to go after North America. How do you approach that topic? When do you think is the right time to start thinking about going abroad and providing solutions at a more global scale than just your home market? Yeah, I think this is a very good question. and It's a very complicated one. And it would probably be different from company to company. It really depends on what is your additional cost of entering a market as But one thing is that we put as a company cultural value is accessibility of our test. And this is very different from, I think, what we have seen in other companies where they have the right intentions, but the way that they initially develop the product has a very high cost. Mm -hmm. And it is very difficult in healthcare, once you establish a product, to decrease the cost of running that test. So... I mean, you can, but I mean, what happens usually is that you your cost goes from maybe seven, eight, nine hundred dollars to maybe three hundred or four hundred dollars. At which point, it is still too expensive for a lot of the developing world, where most of the actually market can be if the price point was right. So one thing that that we really emphasize in our research and development activities is that whatever we develop needs to have a low enough cost that it can be eventually applied and sold in potentially almost every single country that we can think of, at least the majority of the countries, majority of the world. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we really value. 
that doesn't mean that you try to go into all of these countries at once because as a startup, focus is probably the most important thing that you have. So we have an OKR system in place where Mm -hmm. we essentially cut out programs where we know that we are going to get millions of revenue in the next year. And we cut out that program because we know that we just don't have resource enough people to dedicate into all of these different areas. So you really need to make sure that you are focusing on kind of establishing yourself in one market. And after that, you can, I think, especially if entering other market is resource intensive, and it is in our case, you really can expand into other markets afterwards. But your fundamentals need to be there. I think, for you to be able to do that, potentially even in the future. I totally hear that. I think this is a great example of having, you know, impact also meaning a great business, smart business. In this case, uh, making these tests universally accessible, it's not only a positive impact around the world, but it's also good business for the company. This brings me to another thing. Like we talk about, you know, global expansion, wherever you're based, it's an important point of a conversation for all of the startups, especially in the earlier days. Uh, Whether you start in Silicon Valley or you start in a remote town of Ukraine, when to go abroad is a good discussion point. But at the same time, I think a lot of these founders think about international and back home and use of resources in different geographies, not only with meeting the customer and actually as a sales channel and avenue, but also in helping them build the technology and build the product. I know you guys don't have, um, you know, you have your R&D and research and tech in the U.S., in North America, but you have experimented outside of the U.S. in being ready for the market. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the decision behind it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So when we were first trying to get at least a little bit of data that shows that, look, this technology works, this product works, we did uh, clinical trials, clinical studies in India One of our co-founders at the time was from India. He had his undergrad at Princeton and PhD at Stanford. And he had connections back home that we could use to start a clinical study there. And that ended up being useful. But in retrospect, I think even in the US, there were ways to get that data in a cost-effective way. And that is kind of what we ended up doing in addition to the mm-hmm. um, clinical trial in India. And yeah, it is a kind of a difficult balance because everything moves much slower when you are trying to do it overseas. There are a lot of bureaucracies that you have to pass through and you have to deal with not only one set of bureaucratic rules, but multiple sets of bureaucratic rules. And if you are just a founding team that can suck up a lot of resources in terms of mindshare and in terms of dealing with um, all of these things. So I think there is something to be said about using those resources, especially when you are very sure that you can't really get what you need Mm -hmm. in your home base. But seeing kind of what happened eventually, there are ways in which you can get that data in the US, for instance, without costing millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. It always sounds, essentially, if you go to an academic or if you go to someone who kind of thinks through these things, it might sound like, okay, we need millions of dollars to be able to do all of these things. And if you find academic collaborators, if you find the right people, if you persevere enough, if you think out of box, there are always ways to do a lot of these things in a very cost-effective way 
really anywhere in the world. <laughs> so it is really a balancing act. Like, do you really have the mind share? That do you really have enough capacity to be able to handle more than one set of rules? Right. That is really really difficult. Sure. As I'm hearing in the short term, you're not a big fan of this new trend of cross continent development and distributed teams and and outsourcing your tech to a different team in, in a remote part of the world. I don't think that's happening for Billion to One anytime soon. Um, I mean, definitely not. Not for laboratory developed like healthcare uh, products. I think if something can be very well defined mm-hmm. and you know exactly what specs you need, it can be done, right? I think there are increasing tools. I mean, and we are seeing during COVID nineteen pandemic that those tools are becoming really useful for remote work. And if you have a remote first culture, I think that can work for particularly like software-oriented companies, but really it needs to be a very well-taught-out culture. And it is always, I think, much more difficult to do development, research and development in a remote setting, just because like the communication is one of the big bottlenecks, right? And as you grow, it becomes more and more difficult, even when you are co-located in the same environment, even when you can just like grab someone and ask them a question. And in the remote setting where one set of people is getting the feedback from the customers and another set of people is implementing the changes, um, if you don't have the right culture and the right tools and right attitudes in place, it can be quite difficult, right? Iteration speed is the most important thing that you have. Like it's the focus and the iteration because you're not going to have product market fit when you start. (laughs) So you have to iterate. You have to do so many little things before you get to that product that you can actually sell in a scalable way. And for you to be able to really get there, it's not as if I have defined the specifications and I have just given into a remote team and they built it mm-hmm. and now I am going to sell it. Like that never works, sure. right? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I think it, it depends on the culture of the company, as you've said, and the way you've started and the way you've embodied that culture. I think it can't be adopted mm-hmm. just because you have to um, at a later point in time. As we're coming towards the end of our time, I kind of want to ask you about this one thing that I constantly see in B2B businesses, mostly enterprise facing. I see a lot of these teams that are building a superior product with better technology compared to what the incumbents have. Uh, And they're not usually in, in these overly crowded, a lot of noise markets, but just having a better product doesn't translate into having a bigger business. Um, They're having problems just selling and getting to the end customer and opening, you know, the doors of that enterprise grade customer. Um, so when I look at your market, yes, it's not very crowded, it's not very noisy, but there are some very, very big incumbents, um, you know, ranging from private to public companies that probably have 100x the manpower and the economic resources that you guys have had in the beginning. So a lot of these companies, for the ones I've seen, the better tech and the better solution wasn't enough. For you guys, what made the difference that you could go out to market and have customers convert or win market share against these really, really powerful incumbents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... I would say that prenatal market, I mean, both prenatal oncology are actually crowded markets and prenatal probably a really crowded market where the OBGYNs are almost really tired of seeing like another, yet another sales rep trying to sell a prenatal test. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was caused mostly by Illumina where they acquired a company, one of the earlier companies for prenatal, and then they licensed the tech to everyone that they can find. 
and it it had it created all of these like regional labs and national labs and public companies and private mm-hmm. companies and almost every single company did really really well because I mean it's been doing really well particularly because this is such a kind of rich market from a, a reimbursement perspective. But that also resulted in this really overcrowded market for prenatal. And in our case, you really need to solve a pain point for the doctor. And that's very, very important. It can't be just a better technology or even a better product. It really needs to be something that they will want to go through the pain of switching the product. And that pain can feel very little to you as an entrepreneur or as someone who is like maybe very tech savvy, but that pain is actually real for your customers. And in particular, I mean, in our case, even filling out a different order form compared to what they were used to, Mm -hmm. even though it is like a very similar thing, it becomes actually a big bottleneck. So yeah, friction. Yeah. It is a friction. And it is really important to be able to, I think, realize what is actually the job to be done, right? You need to solve the main pain point that they have with a particular product. It can't be just something that is nice to have or a set of many nice to haves. It needs to be a clearly better product Mm -hmm. for you to be able to compete against incumbents that have better resources, that have integrations like EMR integrations with these uh, providers, right? They will offer a lot of bells and whistles that compare to what you can offer. You can't really compete with them on that line. So you need to compete with them on a completely different uh, dimension where you are solving an important pain point that they can solve. And even then, it might not be enough. So just to be clear, like in our case, the main thing that makes us really powerful is that the product itself is so good that we are able to hire the best sales reps from our competitors, mm-hmm. right? And once you hire the best sales reps who already have a lot of existing relationships, who already have a kind of a really good way to sell in the prenatal market, those people can go out and sell. And combined with a much superior product and having the kind of a best sales team you will almost definitely win, um, <laughs> even if other companies have better resources. True, true. So I hear that if you're the painkiller and not the vitamin, mm-hmm. it is possible to build that sales channel that you need and able to compete with the incumbents. Yes. That's good advice for everybody who's listening. Osan, so as we're closing up, I want to ask you our three quick fire questions that are not so quick after all from experience. Um, so let's begin. Um, let's say you're not allowed to work for a year and you can live anywhere you want in the world. Uh, which city would you live in? Um, not being allowed to work doesn't sound like that much fun. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it would be Maui, Hawaii, where I can just do mm-hmm. a lot of reading. I think it would be fun. Cool. That's a good answer. I'll take that. And, and these days where we're not allowed to travel anywhere. So if you had to rename Billion to One, what would it be? And do you ever consider question, you know, the name or why you've named it Billion to One? Um, I didn't question the name. I do like the name, but it becomes a little bit tiresome when you receive a call and uh, people pronounce it as Billion Toon because of the capitalization. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I would definitely consider if I were to rename the company as something that kind of reads the same 
with diff, like with different capitalization. <laughs> that's that's very nice. Um, so the final question would be: if you had to donate your whole net worth into one company, uh, what would that be? Well, um, I mean, this is a little bit, I guess, self-serving, but I'm working on the thing that I think is the most impactful. So, and my whole net worth <laughs> is really tied to a uh, billion to one. So. But if we were to exclude that, and if we can allow, I think, nonprofits, I think Doctors Without Borders would be my choice. I think they, compared to how much funding that they get, the amount of impact that they have is really incredible. And that is because of being able to really attract some of the top doctors, nurses, really people to work in really resource-limited environments they are really impressive, right? And they don't pay people hundreds of thousands of dollars, yeah. these really Harvard, Princeton, Stanford-educated surgeons to go out and live in Africa for multiple years on salaries that are really, really tiny, right? And yeah. I think they would be able to take that. I mean, I don't have a very high net worth, but really convert that to a huge <laughs> impact. Hopefully the network is going to increase by the time. <laughs> Billion to one is much larger uh, for both of our sakes. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm pretty certain that a lot of these um, you know, earlier founders that are listening in to you had a lot of great things to learn from your experience. Thanks again for joining. Uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity. All right. Thanks, Rina. Bye-bye. It's always fun to catch up with Osan because it gives me hope when I see founders from remote parts of the world, like Turkey, to establish a highly growing company that has the potential to have significant impact on the well-being of millions of people around the globe. When Osan and his team started off in the Bay Area, the very early days were quite rough. Raising the first seed round of $100,000 to $200,000 was one of the hardest things the co-founding team had to do. But after they gathered the resources to show early results of their tech, their growth rate was off the charts. These are the types of businesses investors feel excited about and people want to join as team members. And as seen in the case of Billion to One, such businesses can be built by founders from just about anywhere in the world. Until we meet again with exciting content in the upcoming episodes. Cheers. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc'd on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.